program, in spite of a rough stock market and a bumpy economy, there's one business, not a tech company, that has grown revenues from $229 million in 1999 to $762 million by 2012. That business is the 10 largest programs in college football. It's a business where the CEOs, the coaches, are mostly part of the 1%, earning millions annually. And even worse than any other business model, most of their employees work for free. The world of college football specifically and college athletics in general has grown out of all proportion to its value, although their value inside the colleges and universities continues to grow. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Gilbert Gall. He twice won the Pulitzer Prize. He's been shortlisted for the Pulitzer Prize four other times. He's worked as an investigative journalist for the Washington Post, Philadelphia Inquirer, and other newspapers. He was a Neiman Fellow at Harvard and a Ferris Fellow at Princeton. It is my pleasure to welcome Gilbert Gall here to talk about Billion Dollar Ball, a journey through the big money culture of college football. Gilbert, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on the show. It's great to have you here. Has college football, college athletics, grown out of all proportion to its value to society? That's a good question. Um, so it clearly has uh, grown financially. If you look at the revenues, as you cited those 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 figures, it's it's grown dramatically in the last two decades for a variety of reasons we can we we can talk about. And then the question becomes, okay, well, what kind of impact has that had on the university and on the university culture and on academics? And the impact and the impact has been fairly significant in all ways, and it ranges from uh, the amount of money that these elite football programs are now required to spend to hold the hands of the football players and other athletes to keep them eligible, hopefully to try to get them uh, a degree, to how universities use football now as their major brand and not education and argue that this is a way, the only way, that they can get people to pay attention to their, to their universities. But in fact, when we look at the amount of money that goes out for academic scholarships versus the amount of money going out for athletic scholarships, it, it, the disproportion is overwhelming. Uh, yeah, well, football is really expensive. <laughs> in particular, <laughs> if we're just going to focus on that. Um, you know, it, the, the cost, not only for the scholarship, scholarships, actually, it's kind of interesting and surprising. Scholarships only account for about 10% of the cost of, of, of the programs. Um, when you look at uh, the cost centers, the coaches' salaries in particular are the largest cost center. Then you have this growth in the back office operations. A lot of these programs are now run like uh, they style themselves um, as uh, basically as NFL kind of style operations. You can kind of argue that Nick Saban brought that to college football. Um, and you have directors of football operations. You know, you have all recruiting specialists. You have analysts who do data mining. Uh, you name it, and it's there. And then there's all the spending on the lavish facilities on top of it because you, you know, you have to have the latest uh, uh, locker room stuff or playrooms for the athletes if they're going to come to your school if you're going to recruit them. Um, and then, meanwhile, you look at that. And you compare that with what uh, they spend on average across the board uh, on academics per student. And, yeah, I mean, it's like 10 to 1 at, at, at the elite programs. And then uh, what I did was I tried to look at honors colleges at public universities and look at the scholarships they handed out. 
and then compare that with the value of a football scholarship. And you know, some schools are very generous with honors colleges, and others they don't have the money or they're they're not that generous. And uh, maybe they give out a couple thousand dollars or five or five thousand dollars in scholarship to their smartest kids, where the value of a football scholarship is probably forty five fifty thousand dollars just for the tuition room and board. How do the colleges and universities justify all of this in the context of their academic mission? Well, try getting them to answer that question <laughs> is my answer. <laughs> I wanted to interview the presidents of uh, Alabama, Oregon, and Penn State on exactly that question. And um, what I was told in each case is, well, they're unavailable forever or they're traveling uh, always, and uh, they're, uh, I'm sorry, we, you know, we, we recognize who you are, but um, we're not going to talk with you. And so it's really interesting. I don't think you can justify it in the context of academics. I don't see how you can. Um, but yet, uh, the presidents who constantly complain about out-of-control spending then turn around and say, but we're powerless to fix this problem, which is just extraordinary, an extraordinary admission on their part, right? And um, uh, it's very shameful behavior, actually, in my opinion. Where is the nexus in all of this, then, between the colleges and universities and the NCAA and the way that, that this becomes a sort of self-supporting operation? Yeah, well, I mean, you're asking a big question, which has a couple of different components. Uh, the NCAA, you just dismiss. I mean, they, they basically have nothing to do with college football. Uh, and that, there's a long history to that, to that, uh, that discussion. But, you know, the NCAA is very intimately involved in March Madness and basketball, but football is football and it's off on its own. Um, the other thing that's interesting, going back to the presidents, is, you know, they've been embarrassed by scandals involving college football forever. And at a certain point in time, they, they sort of came up with this solution, which led to the creation of this business model that exists that I think is broken, where they, they sort of with a wink and a nod say, okay, you know, you want to have athletic departments like this and you want to have a football program like this and build larger stadiums, great, but we're not going to give you any of our university money. you got to go come up with the money on, on your own. And so turns out the athletic directors at these schools are really bright, smart guys, which they are, by the way. They're, they're not evil guys. They're just really good at what they do, and they monetize every aspect of the football programs, and that leads to this gigantic growth in college football over the last couple of decades, huge television fees, you know, all these seat donation payment systems that they have nowadays for premium seating, um, which generates hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, the corporate effect from advertising, Nike support, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and, and lo and behold, these programs grow out of, grow out of control. So now, now the presidents are hiding from that. They, they basically create the problem and then, and then they run from it. Does anybody acknowledge that essentially they're in the entertainment business? Yeah, they do. I mean, I remember having a conversation with Jim Delaney at the Big Ten in which he had said precisely that. Um, I remember having a conversation with Graham Spaniard at Penn State back in 2000 uh, in an interview where he told me exactly that. But then they quickly say, but we're also in the education business, and they're not mutually exclusive. And, you know, they may believe that. And they, and, and at some level, you know, there's maybe sort of some truth to that. But the reality is if you look closely like I did at what exists today, it's really hard to make that argument.
I mean, it really is an entertainment business, and the athletic departments really are set up like these standalone entertainment divisions of these universities. We were talking about statistics early on in terms of money. I mean, my, my favorite statistic of all the ones that, that you have is that the highest paid public employees in 27 states are college football coaches. Yeah, I mean, I think it's actually probably closer to 50 <laughs> than it is 27. But, uh, yeah, no, it's absolutely true. I mean, if you look at governors, you know, you look at whoever um, whoever the uh, elected officials are in those states. I mean, yeah, I mean, the coach, football coaches are earning, earning uh, I know, I'm going to guess here, you know, seven to, seven to ten times seven to ten times what the uh, uh, what the uh, what, what those governors are earning um, if you look at the professors uh, full professors at universities and compare those uh, salaries between the football coaches and the, and the professors I mean it's it's extraordinary it's just huge amounts of money um, the gap is just extraordinary and that in my opinion goes to the value of what you're actually doing you're running a football program or you're running a university what about the difference and, and the similarities between what's going on in, for example, the Big Ten programs, the top ten programs, and programs at the elite universities, at the Stanfords, the Harvards, the Princetons? Well, you know, it, it depends. I mean, Stanford is part of Pac-12, so it's very much part of this issue. Um, although it's Stanford, so clearly, um, you know, education still really matters at Stanford. And I think that if you look at their football team, it's probably going to be one of a handful of elite programs where the football players actually major in real subjects and they aren't clustering in sociology, they aren't clustering in, in, in other uh, subjects that are relatively, uh, they're, they're less, uh, they're, they're easier to get through. Let me just put it that way. So I think a Stanford, you know, sort of stands out a little bit. Um, probably Northwestern, too. Um, you know, the way it works at Princeton in the Ivy Leagues, um, it's different, but yet it isn't different. And what I mean by that is, uh, and this is probably true at Stanford and, and, and Northwestern and a couple other large elite programs, Vanderbilt, I know it is, or was anyway, um, if you're a football player, the easiest way to get in, I tell people this, the easiest way to get into an Ivy League college is if you're smart, but not necessarily at the top of your class, but if you're smart and you're a good but not great football player, so in other words, nobody's going to offer you a Division I scholarship, or they might at a lower tier Division I program, your chances of getting into an Ivy League school increase dramatically if you apply, because um, Ivy League schools have tremendous numbers of slots that they need to fill on their varsity athletic teams. And they have to recruit people to go on those slots. And so they look for people who are smart and pretty good at a sport, but not necessarily the very best at a sport. And that becomes your avenue to get in. I, I jokingly tell people to tell their kids to put down the cellos and, you know, the drama classes and whatever and pick up a field hockey stick or pick up a football or a baseball because that's where, um, percentage-wise, you increase your chances of getting into that school. Um, now, if you talk to Bill Bowen, the former president at Princeton, for example, he will tell you that he's looked, he's studied this problem, he's written a book about it, and, um, you know, that those... 
um, those athletes on average are, you know, they are maybe a hundred or, or more points below the mean on the SAT scores of the average students getting into the Ivy League schools. Their GPAs aren't as well, and he argues that they don't do quite as well uh, academically as non-athletes at those schools. So, you know, it's not like it's without problems at the elite schools. Talk about the money that these larger institutions are bringing in, the, the big business that it is, and what they're doing with that money, what that money goes for within the institution. Sure. Yeah, so, I mean, take Texas. I mean, Texas is, is a athletic budget is $170 million, which is just extraordinary. Um, football program brings in or accounts for roughly $110 million of that. Um, they offer... 20 varsity sports or did in 2012 when I, when I was really focusing on them. Um, again, by comparison, Princeton offers 36 varsity sports. Texas had about 549 varsity athletes on those 20 teams. Princeton had nearly 1,000 varsity athletes on its 36 teams. So right away, that tells you the difference in philosophy. Texas is in it to win national championships and to presumably – um, you know, uh, use that to help brand the university, although I don't know they need to do that. Uh, it's an awfully good school to begin with, or at least it used to be before the budget cuts. Um, so, you know, you, you, you have that. Then you look at the budgets, and what you see is Texas gives a little bit of money to the university. The bulk of the money stays in the athletic departments. They fund their teams um, to the hilt. Uh, you know, the program is extremely lavish. The coaches' salaries are all extremely high. Uh, if you look at salaries as a percent of the athletic department at Texas, it's either number one or number two. Um, so, you know, they're paying coaches a lot of money, especially the football coaches. Uh, the facilities, for the most part, are fairly lavish. Uh, a couple of them are getting a little bit old. They need a new basketball arena, they tell me. Um, you know, academic support, um, uh, you name it, and, uh, and, and, and that's where the money goes. To what extent are the students and the athletes responding to this? To what extent are they aware of it, and what is their reaction to it? I mean, we certainly see situations like Northwestern where there's an attempt by some of the yep. uh, athletes to, to unionize. But overall, what are we seeing among the students and athletes? Well, I don't know that I can answer that question. Um, I didn't report it uh, deeply enough, probably. But, I mean, my general sense of things is that the athletes are certainly aware of it. Um, in the Olympic sports, um, the non-money sports, the sports without television contracts, without huge you know, revenue flows coming in, and those are most of the sports, the athletes tend to be less aware of it. I mean, they don't know what the coach is making. Um, they, uh, you know, they probably aren't, uh, aren't that aware of the disparities between spending on them and spending on other sports. They're just happy to have a scholarship. They're happy to get a chance to participate. Um, when you get up the food chain to things like football and basketball, the athletes are clearly aware of what the coaches' salaries are because it's in the paper every day. <laughs> it's on the radio every day. I mean, people know what these coaches are getting paid. Um, it's just become part of, uh, you know, part of the gestalt of college sports. Um, they probably know a little bit less about the rest of the operation and how the money is spent. 
um, some of them clearly think that they ought to get a larger share. I mean, that's a growing that's a growing trend in in uh, in, in the arguments about college sports. There are whole organizations and there are lawyers um, suing, um, you know. So that's that's out there, and people 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 are uh, are aware of it. Um, I'm not sure when it comes to academics, sort of if they understand what's going on, and uh, conversely, if they understand how well they're being treated at the universities and the advantages that they have over the regular student body. Um, that's an interesting question. Uh, they probably don't want to know the answer to that, frankly. Has any of this played out differently, or have you sensed any difference in attitudes either within the athletic departments, within the administration, or even what, what you've picked up from students as college costs have become more expensive, as that's become a fundamental issue on local, state, and national level? As as the cost yeah, of the college so, education has become yeah really yeah yeah front no that's that's a good question and the answer to it may be a little surprising so at the elite schools um, not so much and the reason is because they operate they're responsible for raising their own money and they're not for the most part uh, surviving off of uh, fees passed through from the university it's it's less of an issue at these other schools, these um, we're just talking about football. So these other sixty or so Division One schools that have and want to compete uh, at the highest levels at uh, college football, but yet they don't have the interest or the resources to pull it off. They don't get the television money. They don't get the conference money. Uh, their stadiums are often half empty. Um, they don't have the fan loyalty. They can't charge premiums for premium seating. You know those programs. The only reason they exist is because they're they're getting, you know, ten million, fifteen million, twenty million dollars a year in fees that um, the other students are paying uh, in order to subsidize this football program. There's an awareness out there that's starting to brew as we speak about these fees because they haven't really been that transparent in the past, but it's becoming more transparent now. And people are beginning to talk about this. And so one of the things you may see in the future is a uh, sort of an uproar about um, about the use of these fees to fund money-losing football teams in some of these conferences that where, the, you know, for whatever reason, in the magical thinking of the presidents, they think that they're not a real university if they don't have a Division One football program. Where did that thinking get started? How far hmm. back do we have to go? Where did where did that tipping you know, point happen? Yeah, I don't know if there's a tipping point. I will I will say that you know it's been around forever on some level that presidents and universities thought they could use football to advertise their schools as a way to advertise their schools. Where it changes is in the '80s when this run up, this ramping up of uh, revenue and spending and costs for college football in particular and athletics in general at these elite universities um, takes off, you begin, um, you begin to see more um, dramatic examples of colleges using football to brand themselves. And they develop this argument, a defense, a defense, if you will, for what they're doing, where they say, well, football is uh, the front porch of the university and that that's the way we get people in to see uh, all this other good stuff we do. 
um, you know, it's sort of a backwards argument by uh-huh. the presidents and, and the universities and athletic directors, I think. Um, there are lots of other ways that they could take some of that money and plow it back into scholarships, plow it back into, uh, you know, into new programs, educational programs, and things like that, uh, that are actually part of the educational mission. Um, but, you know, they, 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 they seem to believe this kind of mythology that somehow if you have a, a, foot, a, a big-time football program that um, it's going to enhance your brand and maybe even make you smarter, which, which I think is, is a very bizarre and disingenuous argument. And to what extent is this also a public policy issue because of the tax exemption from some of this, some right. of the money that's earned by these colleges? Yeah, well, I mean, it's in my, uh, I write about this a lot in the tax treatment of college football because it's clearly a public policy issue. But having said that, it's a public policy issue that, that um, the administration is even aware of, the Obama administration is aware of it, the Treasury Department's aware of it. The IRS has tried to deal with this issue um, for decades. And every time it says, look, you know, what, treating college football, um, whether it's these mandatory seat payments or television fees or something else, um, the same way you treat uh, other forms of charity, whether it's writing a check to the Red Cross or Salvation Army or a homeless shelter, you know, it makes no sense. It, it just, it just, it doesn't. Uh, college football is commercialized. It's a quid pro quo. If you're buying a seat, you're getting something of value, yet we're treating it like a charity. It makes no sense. Every time they've tried to go after that issue, they've gotten beaten back by Congress and by the college football lobby. And to the point where in, in the uh, mid-'80s and then in the later-'80s, Congress literally writes into the law that that you're allowed to take an 80% deduction for your, uh, for your um, mandatory seat payment to secure a seat in a college football stadium. Do you see any of this changing in the next several years? Uh, I certainly don't see that aspect of it changing. Um, there's there's awareness going on. Um, I think college football for the near term, when I say that, I mean maybe five to ten years, will more or less continue on the way it is. I think the issue of paying players is is you know incrementally is playing itself out, and meaning that players will uh, players will get some some additional couple thousand dollars more at the elite programs. They're certainly not going to get any more at the poor programs, I don't think, because there's no money to pay them without raising those other student fees. Um, You know, the one thing that it's a little bit tricky to figure out is I think that the younger generation of fans is less rabid about Mm -hmm. college football uh, than the older generation. Uh, You begin to see that even at places like Alabama where the students leave the games at halftime, Nick Saban gets upset about it and, and um, you know, and criticizes them for doing that. Um, you know, the social media and the impact of social media and, and holding a phone in your hand that allows you access to any number of things, you know, offers a competing version of reality that, um, you know, that could have an impact on not only attendance to games that I know athletic directors are worried about, um, but also in television viewing downstream. If nothing else, it could change the way you view a game. And if you're viewing a game on a tablet or a phone or an app or something or other, um, you know, then that's going to change the revenue model for paying. This, the the uh, folks who uh, own those technologies and, and such uh, aren't going to be willing to pay quite as much 
uh, as ESPN or Fox or CBS. And that is the critical point, that if we look at this, coming back to the point before, if it's the entertainment business, then it is subject to all the vagaries of creative destruction and technology as they're impacting entertainment. Oh, I think so, absolutely. I mean, that's something that's not getting a lot of attention. It's getting some but it's not getting nearly as much attention because at the moment, you know, there have been these recent huge television contracts, the Pac-12 out your way being right. a great example, $3 billion. Plus they started their own regional network, which presumably if it works, will bring in millions more. Um, so for the time being, they're looking at this issue of live content and everybody's saying, we're okay, we're okay, we're okay. And if you ask them, well, okay, I understand that, but what about five years from now or 10 years from now? They don't want to talk about it. They are, well, you know, we have to focus on the moment. We can't worry about downstream. I'd be worried about it because I think there is a disruptive element to this in the technology that's, that's going to come downstream. And it's going to cut into the, uh, it's going to cut into the revenue streams for, uh, for the schools. You know, the tax exemption issue, I think as long as Congress is there, you know, and they've, they've got all these football loyalists, I don't think that's going to change. Gilbert Gall, the book is Billion Dollar Ball, A Journey Through the Big Money Culture of College Football, just out from Viking. Gilbert, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, it's been great. I enjoyed the questions. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 